Who do you think you are? That's a pretty vulnerable question. Today's episode is all about exposing yourself to uncomfortable feelings. Vulnerability is defined as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Can you name one act of courage that you've ever been involved in or that you've ever even witnessed that did not involve uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? And it's a loaded question because I know the answer is no, because I've asked it thousands and thousands. I've stood in front of Navy SEALs and Special Forces military personnel and said, I want you to try hard to give me an example of courage that didn't require vulnerability. And in 10 years, I've never had a single person give me an example of courage, even on the field, that doesn't involve vulnerability. If you think you're being brave and it doesn't involve risk or uncertainty, you're not being that brave. You know how it's going to turn out. It's not courage. And so in that moment, people go, shit, but I want to be brave and I don't want to be vulnerable. And I'm like, therein lies. No one wants to be uncomfortable. No one wants to be vulnerable and everyone wants to be brave. And it just doesn't work like that. I mean, when I ask people, what is vulnerability? People would say, initiating sex with my wife, sending my child out the door who thinks he's going to make the first chair in orchestra and knowing he's probably not gonna make the orchestra at all. Getting fired, starting my own business, saying I love you first in a relationship, trying to get pregnant after my first miscarriage. Vulnerability, it's uncertainty, it's not knowing, but doing it anyway, because it's the brave thing to do. The problem is, I think, that the greatest shame trigger for men is do not be perceived as weak. And in our culture, we believe that vulnerability is weakness. So you don't have to skip too many steps before you go, hey, it's shaming to be vulnerable. And so men do two things in the face of shame, pissed off or shut down, put on a mask. And so what we're learning and what people are starting to see very quickly is you cannot be a courageous leader if you're not vulnerable if you're not willing to have hard, uncomfortable conversations, give hard feedback, receive hard feedback, excavate issues like Charlottesville that no one wants to talk about. Like discomfort is the great enemy of courage. Like my motto is, we say it here all the time, choose courage over comfort, because you can't have both. And if you think you're being brave and you're super comfortable, you're not being that brave. I was so shocked to learn in the research that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is assessing a group of people and thinking, who do I need to be? What do I need to say? What do I need to wear? How do I need to act? And changing who you are. And true belonging never asks us to change who we are. It demands that we be who we are. Because if if we fit in because how we've changed ourselves, that's not belonging. That's not belonging because you betrayed yourself for other people, and that's not sustainable. You start to lose yourself. So I think it's hard. You have to show up as who you are. You can lose yourself in the fitting in, and you can lose yourself in the rebuttal to the fitting in. It's really hard. I mean, it's this thing that is a quote that is, Braving the Wilderness is all about this, starts with this quote from Maya Angelou, that we're never free until we belong nowhere. We belong everywhere, which is nowhere, which is no place at all which I thought was a terrible quote for many years. (laughs) And I was like, why are you saying that, Dr. Angelo? But then I realized, and she says, the cost is high, but the reward is great. I think that's the thing, that I feel like I belong everywhere I go, no, no matter where it is or who I'm with, as long as I never betray myself. And the minute I become who you want me to be in order to fit in and make sure people like me is the moment I no longer belong anywhere. That is hard. I mean, that's a hard practice. That's an everyday practice. Blame. How many of you are blamers? How many of you 
When something goes wrong, the first thing you want to know is whose fault it is. I'm like, hi, my name is Brene, I'm a blamer. How many of you go to that place when something bad happens, the first thing you want to know is whose fault is it? Even I'd rather it be my fault than no one's fault. Because why, why? Because it gives us some semblance of control. It gives us some semblance of control. But here, if you enjoy blaming, this is where you should stick your fingers in your ear and do the na 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 thing because I'm getting ready to ruin it for you. Because here's what we know from the research. Blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. It has an inverse relationship with accountability, meaning that people who blame a lot seldom have the tenacity and grit to actually hold people accountable because we expend all of our energy raging for 15 seconds and figuring out whose fault something is. Accountability by definition is a vulnerable process. It means me calling you and saying, hey, my feelings were really hurt about this. No, 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 and talking. It doesn't, it's not blaming. Blaming is simply a way that we discharge anger, which is really hard. And blaming is very corrosive in relationships. And it's one of the reasons we miss our opportunities for empathy. Because when something happens and we're hearing a story, we're not really listening. We're in the place where I was, making the connections as quickly as we can about whose fault something was. There's a researcher at the University of Kansas Lawrence, C.R. Schneider, he died a couple of years ago, who spent his career studying hope. I lucked into his research because when I had my list of words that all of these wholehearted men and women had in common, I took a combination of them one day for the millionth time doing a keyword search in the, in the academic literature. And I came up with his theory on hope. And it not only changed the way I think about my, my work, but it changed my life. And it changed the way I'm raising my kids. As it turns out, hope is not an emotion at all. I think most of us think of hope as a feeling of possibility, of positivity. I'm very hopeful. What hope actually is, a cognitive thinking approach. Hope is not how we feel, it's how we think. And here is the most, I think, profound news of all. It is 100% teachable. The majority, we can measure hope in people. Um, they measure highly hopeful or low hopefulness. What we see traditionally in, in people who have high levels of hope is they learned it through parenting, through their parents, who either explicitly taught hope or modeled hope. And as you can see, there are three pieces of it, goals, pathway, and agency. What this means simply is people who have high levels of hope in their lives have these three abilities. They can set goals, which is in itself not an easy task. They can cultivate pathways to achieving those goals and they have a sense of agency. And agency is simply, I believe I can do it. Here's the part that I think is so important. Hope is a function of struggle. Hope looks like I've got a goal, it's reachable. I believe in my ability to get there even if I have to plan B it. One of the things that's happened in our culture is that we are not letting our children have any experiences of failure. No experiences of hard work, failure, more hard work equals success. What happens, and what I see as a college professor often, is when they get to us, it's a whole different ballgame. Most of my friends get text messages when their children's averages fall below 95. We don't do that in college. 
They, you know, the workforce, the last Fortune 200 company I spoke with, they said one of the greatest problems were the number of younger employees contacting their parents about performance evaluations and asking them if they could call their bosses. We think of hope as this really binding emotion, this kind of collective dreaming that we do together. And I think it can be a collective binding experience, but it is not bound around gauzy feelings of possibility. When hope brings people together, it brings people together from a place of struggle through hard work to achievement. And people who experience that together, whether you're a team working in an ad agency on the next presentation or you're a family or you're a group of kids in class, what brings people together is the sense of success, of accomplishment, having experienced struggle. And so what I would ask, invite you to think about at least, is that hope is a function of struggle. And it's the product of not tying our failure to who we are. The biggest thing that gets in the way of this whole idea of agency and pathway is that if I fail, I am a failure. What we see in high hopeful people is that we, they can separate their achievements and their struggles and their failures from who they are as people. Shame, we believe, is the most primitive human affect or emotion that we experience. We all have it. What we know from research about three or four decades now is the only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human connection. If you don't experience shame, it's because you have no capacity for connection or empathy. And so what we're talking about there is kind of some serious psychopathology. So shame is something we all have. It drives two primary tapes or, or, or kind of ways of thinking. The two big things that shame drives is never good enough and who do you think you are? And those are vices, let me tell you. Never good enough. You know, it's funny because if I said, how many of you wrestle with shame? No one would raise their hand. But if I said, how many of you struggle with perfectionism? That would be different, right? Would that feel different? Yeah, it would feel different. Shame birthplace of perfectionism. Where we struggle with perfectionism, we struggle with shame. So this is a really universal thing for all of us. And it's really best easily understood as the fear of disconnection. There's something about me, there's something I've done or failed to do, where our self-worth is tied to our net worth, where everyone's houses are supposed to look like stills out of the Pottery Barn catalog. You know, how many of you, how many of you received the fall Pottery Barn catalog? It's devastating to me. It is. I just want for one autumn, for all the pumpkin crap to be outside and to have my kids in slow motion in sweaters. That's just one time, you know? We have a media that tells us what we should look like, how much we should make, what we should weigh, how many times a week we should be having sex. We got the rules and no one's doing it, but everyone's pretending. The issue around shame is it's an absolute silent epidemic. It's so funny because no one will talk about shame, but if you look at the Nielsen ratings for the last five years, the shows that really capture the top 10, shame-based programming, reality TV. You wanna know what courage is to me? What courage is to me is the ability to tell your story and like who you are in the process of doing that. And that's hard. Men and women who have high levels of shame resilience, what I found, and this is the work I've been doing for the last three years, have a tendency to have more authenticity, 
They live with a deeper sense of love and belonging, and they have a much more resilient spirit. And I think those are the things we're after. I think we wanna feel comfortable in our own skin. I think we want a, sense of, a deep sense of love and belonging. I think it's a basic human need. And I'll tell you very quickly, if you were to ask me just from the data, what is the difference between people who have a deep sense of love and belonging and people who are struggling for it? The answer would be worthiness. That's the only difference. Men and women who carry a deep sense of love and belonging within them believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. The trick is no prerequisites. Not when I make partner, not when I lose 20 pounds, not if I get pregnant, not if my husband comes back, not if my daughter gets into Yale, not if I make the Fortune 500, no prerequisites. Just as is right now, worthy of love and belonging. And the last thing is a resilient spirit. That is an absolute outcome of being able to live in your story. You know, we get to rewrite the endings of our stories if we're willing to walk into them and own them. It's a powerful thing. Shame versus guilt, very quickly, this is really important. A lot of people confuse these two. The difference between shame and guilt is the difference between I am bad and I did something bad. How many of you in the audience, if you made a mistake and hurt someone's feelings, how many of you would be willing to say, I'm sorry I made a mistake? Show of hands. How many of you, if you made that mistake, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I am a mistake? That's the difference between shame and guilt. Here's what we know, three decades of research. Shame, highly correlated. Addiction, violence, depression, bullying, and eating disorders.